Right now on Fast, Merck versus the U.S. government. The drug giant suing Uncle Sam, saying D.C.'s plan to negotiate drug pricing through Medicare is unconstitutional. The details of the suit, the ripple effects on Big Pharma straight ahead. Plus, the banking bounce, the regionals rebounding today and surging over the last week. What is behind this turnaround and could now be the time to bet again on the banks? And later, a buzzkill for Boeing. Their Dreamliner nightmare continues. Home builders keep hammering home gains and pouring a tall, cold glass of profits in the wake of the Bud Light boycott. I'm Melissa Lee. This is Fast Money. We're live at the Nasdaq Market Site on the desk tonight. Tim Seymour, Bono and Ison, Guy Adami, and Mike Coe. We start off with a Merck meltdown. Shares dropping nearly 3% today after the company sued the Biden administration over the Inflation Reduction Act. The legislation would give Medicare the ability to negotiate prescription drug prices down by as much as 60%. Merck calling the bargaining process a sham and, quote, tantamount to extortion. Among the drugs that could be impacted, diabetes drug Genuvia, which brought Merck nearly $3 billion in revenue last year, and cancer treatment Keytruda with $21 billion in annual sales. So will other pharma companies follow Merck's lead? And what will this mean for the healthcare industry? Obviously, pricing has been a big overhang over the industry and what control the government has over this. Yeah, will others follow in kind? I think absolutely they will. Is Merck on the... Moral high ground, I don't know, but on the legal high ground, probably yes. And when you call something a sham, and to your point, tantamount to extortion, I mean, they have pretty good lawyers. They chose those words carefully. The question is, how do you invest or trade the stocks? Now, I think a couple things. Eli Lilly, by the way, is within a whisper of an all-time high. Merck has sold off from its all-time high, not that much, but... I think there's been somewhat of a rotation out of the space. If you think, like I think, this will pass as well, valuations are so compelling, and at some point there'll be a rotation back to healthcare from high-flying tech, I think you own these stocks on these sell-offs. But isn't this political sort of, I don't know, is this a a headwind, Tim? It's a headwind because it's uncertainty. We talk this all the time. This is just just, just like it, and it feels like another one of those sectors we've just gotten done with the banks being under at least a different kind of a regulatory uh, squeeze. This is a squeeze where there's unknown. Granted, we have until 2026 to see some of these rules come into stake. I don't think there's any question other drug companies come come in here, and I think at some point it'll be, I think, the entire group fighting together. But if you think about uh, what's going on with Merck, and you think about Keytruda, and you think about some of the products that they have that, by the way, they just gave an update on Keytruda recently at, at, at a big industry conference where they talked about a product pipeline for mid to late cycle uh, oncology, where there's a lot of exciting things that have caused a lot of folks to come out and re-rate. I mean, they have as much to lose by this as anybody. So if you think about the places, and there's been pretty good dispersion between healthcare, right? I mean, uh, my Pfizer, not so much, but you look at a Merck, you look at a Lilly, uh, you have companies that have really outperformed, and you've got an analyst community, I think a, a, a portfolio management community that have been easy to adopt some of these trends. And so um, I think it's uh, early stages here. This isn't new news. We knew about this Inflation uh, Protection Act, you know, hit against the drug companies. They are hitting back. It's political uh, and it remains so. Yeah, I mean, I don't know what else we really would have expected. I mean, this is really the lifeblood of the profitability of these companies. Essentially, before they convert to generics, they need to extract maximum value. So I'm not surprised to see them come out and fight vehemently. I think from a trading standpoint, and that's really why we're here, I mean, it may compel you to kind of look into, I mean, counterintuitively, more risky parts of the healthcare space, biotech, et cetera, that aren't necessarily... um, uh, subject to these type of regulations. So uh, for me, I, I, I do think there will always be a demand for healthcare, particularly the defensive nature. But I can understand, at least in the short or intermediate term, pushing out a bit on the risk curve while you avoid this situation altogether. 
You know, Mike, what's interesting about this whole IRA impact is that, you know, you know when these drugs will come under the effect of the IRA Genuvia. It'll be 2026, where it will be subject to, you know, potentially a 25 to 60 percent discount uh, for Keytruda. That's going to be a little bit farther out in 2028. So, you know, if you're worried about a patent cliff, all of a sudden this is like an earlier worse almost patent cliff because you're cutting short that lifespan of the drug where you can actually make money. Well, that's right. You get two clips essentially right. now uh, for the price of one. <laughs> and, you know, this is unfortunately from a legal perspective, it's, uh, there's also a little bit of a political battle going on here. Optically, this is a tough one, right? Because high drug prices are unpopular and trying to reduce uh, health care spending, particularly by the government, is probably a politically popular uh, portion of the IRA, I would think. The thing is that uh, when you take a look at Pfizer and Merck specifically, these are two names that are, are particularly cheap. A lot of bad news is already baked into them. We are seeing some other stocks like AstraZeneca today where we saw some actually bullish uh, options activity, but bearish in these other two, as I was, I was mentioning. I think uh, you know this, this might actually be an okay time to uh, dip your toe into some of these because there's already so much bad news baked in. Guy, how much, I mean, when you say there could be a rotation and how much is that influenced by your belief that this is going to be so far out or that it's already factored into the stocks? I think the rotation portion, I believe that some of the some of the indications, some of the metrics on these high flying tech names are levels we haven't seen in 30 years. I mean, we're two standard deviations away in terms of RSIs and stuff. So I think at a certain point, some of these high value, high growth names are going to break. I think a break in those stocks will get people back in energy, one, but healthcare as well, too. And I think it's just a matter of time at this point, given where things are. And these stocks, listen, have they been under pressure? It's hard to say that with Eli Lilly at an all-time high right. and Merck within a whisper of its all-time high. But valuations, to me, are still compelling. So I still think these stocks go higher. Well, it, rotation is the word for the markets right now, too. We could be opening the show uh, talking about a lot of sectors that are either getting and, and healthcare is a rotation out. Look, it's been a very defensive place. If you were talking to people six months ago, all they could tell you was to buy healthcare and maybe some energy, again, places that seem defensive and counter-cyclical. So I think a lot of the move in healthcare right now, if you look at the IYH, is some of this is just a function of, look at the market we're in. Look at the move we've had. Look at the risk aggression, the risk on that's been going into mega cap tech. And I just, you know, I look at the IYH again, and again, you know, a proxy at least for the healthcare sector, and it doesn't mean uh, that that's how you have to own it. And in fact, I'm long Merck, I'm long Pfizer, I'm long Lilly, um, and, and, but I, it's traded basically in a 15% range for a year with a slightly upward, upward, you know, kind of trajectory of, of a slope, and that's a function of the markets we're in. I, I, I don't think people run that far from some of the biggest balance sheets in the world, some of the, some of the most um, cash-generative companies in the world, even with some of this overhang. All right. Our next guest says Merck's suit against the Biden administration could cause a narrative shift in pharma. Jared Holtz is a healthcare sector specialist with Mizuho Securities. He joins us here on set at the NASDAQ. Jared, great to have you with us. Thank you. Um, what are your thoughts about whether or not this thing goes through? It's really, really tough to say. Um, I don't really think anyone knows whether it's going to go through or not. But you know, this is Merck being very aggressive. Obviously, they pulled no punches with the language that they drew up today. And, you know, I expect other companies to follow suit here. Specifically in the case of Merck, if you did sort of do the math and you assumed, let's say, a minimum discount, 25 percent discount to a Genuvia um, and to a, to a Keytruda, what would that mean to Merck? I mean, it basically means that the R&D spending and maybe SG&A in terms of how they run the company, these are going to have to be cut. I mean, we saw Novartis... Um, curtail its pipeline a couple of weeks ago, basically blaming future drug price 
um, initiatives as a reason for pulling back. So I think R&D spending is going to be cut. You could see SG&A go lower, too. So the whole complexion of how these companies are run broadly, I think, could change dramatically, you know, given whether it's 25 percent cut, 30, 60 even. So we'll see. It sounds like then, you know, the longer term potential impact would be that the most innovative drugs will be developed in biotech as opposed to by big pharma. Well, that's basically what's happening now. Yeah. So no major shift there. That's why I, I agree with some of the panelists earlier. I think you can probably own biotech here if you're worried about the complexion in pharma because they're going to have to be they're They're desperate now. I think they could be more desperate to augment their um, commercial businesses, their pipelines with other assets, where do they find them? Typically, small and mid-cap biotech. We're talking about Merck, but you mentioned other names that are specifically under some risk here. Can you talk about that? Yeah, well, I think AbbVie, Amgen, Pfizer. I mean, most of the companies at some point will be under a lot of risk with respect to drug pricing, whether it's 2026, 28, 29. Remember, the government is basically taking a new look every year and, and going to come out with 10 new drugs that they think they need to kind of mess with. So at some point, even Lilly with Manjaro and some of these other you know, major brands, everyone's going to be hit. It's just a matter of when. Is it 26? Is it 30? We don't know, but that's kind of the game plan. Jared, I can understand both sides on this. And, and, and it, that question, it's a political issue. It's an emotional issue. Uh, we want these companies to spend, spend, spend to develop these therapies. And, and they're the best in the world. And we, you know, coming out of COVID, we're all thankful for the money pharma has invested in their businesses. When the government says, not only in addition to these laws and pricing and how they're going to negotiate, that you have to agree that these rules are fair. Um, and this is where they're, they're, they're contesting this on a First Amendment right. Like you're asking the drug companies to say, this is great. We think this is totally fair. We have no right to profitability. That's where this seems kind of absurd yeah. and, and where I think they have a lot of room to push back. I agree. I mean, I, th I think um, our understanding is that the drug companies are meeting with the government fairly regularly and they're trying to you know, talk to CMS about how they can improve the IRA, what they can do to actually streamline this process and make the economics more viable. And so far, based on the language in the Merck document today, it doesn't seem like that much progress is being made. But certainly, I agree that I feel like when you look at these companies and what they're going through and all the pushback on pricing and it's affecting their ability to do business, something has to be done. Um, so far, we've talked about drugs that are, you know, key to people's health, main, maintaining health. When you think about the new emerging class of weight loss drugs and when they eventually get insurance coverage, could these also be subject to this uh, forced discount? Yeah, I mean, it, it really is just a matter of when. Where's it end? Right, it, it will, so they will be hit at some that point. Are, that are seen as a holy grail for the pharmaceutical industry. The reason why Lilly has run up so much could be basically cut in half in terms of price on the market much earlier than patent expiration. Well, not so much earlier, but once they become large enough, the government looks at them and they fall into some criteria of being material enough from a revenue standpoint. And yes, but, you know, we're in basically the, we're in the first year of these launches. So they've got another nine, call it, before there's real intervention here. So we got time for Lily. OK, Jared, great to see you. Thanks for coming by. Always nice to see you here in person. Jared Holtz. Michael, your thoughts? Yeah, I mean, uh, it, when I take a look at a name like Pfizer, which is it's kind of interesting, you know, this is valued within spitting distance, give or take, of where the company was. Uh, seven years ago, we had that huge run up uh, related to the pandemic and the vaccines. Obviously, a lot of that is is coming back out of it now. But, at a, you know, call it a two hundred and thirty billion dollar enterprise value. This is a company that's probably going to make uh, three thirty three and a half bucks a share in the next 18 months or so. 
Uh, you know, that's not exceptionally expensive. Um, so I think there are some, some places you can be in it. And of course, these companies will aggressively, I think, try to pursue product that they can extract some value out of. I mean, on first read, it really just looks like a lot of this is being painted with very broad brush strokes. And I think that's what we're all speaking to here. You know, the, the other question that I have is really how this is going to impact M&A activity going forward. You have the government kind of stepping in. Are they also going to put the clamps down on companies merging or acquiring one another? And, they and, have in other industries yeah, well, already. I mean, you would expect <laughs> it to happen here as well. But it's, it's essentially, are you, are you painting these companies into a corner where there's really no viable option? By the way, this is all, these are headlines that haven't even gone. We're not into the presidential political cycle here, really, where this is where you usually hear the beatdown. Um, so it, it's it's a little it's a little concerning, but but I, I think we're going to get back to a place where in markets that are fearful of recession and macro, um, healthcare and and some of the predictability on at least these companies that have pipelines that we can model out the next three to five years is going to make a lot of these companies very attractive. All right, we got another bu- bullish development for regional banks: the KRE ETF jumping more than five percent, closing above its 50-day moving average for the third day in a row. It is now up 25 percent. From its intraday lows hit just a month ago, every one of the 140-plus stocks in the ETF up today. The biggest winners, cloud-based Live Oak Bank shares and First Foundation up almost 11%. Home Street up 10%. Have we seen the worst guy? I think they're more headline risk for sure, but in the absence of news, I mean, this thing's going to grind higher because valuation is going to be compelling for people. And I think they're going to say, you know, I don't want to get ahead of something. And with each passing day, I think people become more emboldened. What I found really interesting, and this probably makes a lot of sense, is KRE for sure. But look what it did to the small caps in the form of the IWM, which is heavily bank weighted. So I think people are looking at small caps and saying maybe the worst is over in terms of the economy. But I think it's somewhat misguided because so much of this is on the back of banks, which is just a catch up trade on valuation, in my opinion. Well, one of the things that I think means you have more room for this trade to go higher, in addition to the things you just said, Guy, which are dead on. Is, is that Fed fund futures are back above where they were um, pre-SVB. Um, there's some sense here that the Fed now has, uh, you know, that, that the world has is, is gone back. We know that headlines are coming. I agree with that also. I mean, that, there's no question more banks are going down. We've just also learned in the last three months that how quickly you can actually run from a bank. But, but, but the valuations went to recession, credit recession levels at 0.9 times price to tangible book. So there is value when you own an ETF, you have the diversification. Um, and it was probably the right sequencing even just in terms of time. There's no reason to buy that trade right away. But I think they do go higher. I mean, once upon a time, like a month ago, my co- the concern was uh, increased capital requirements. We just had that article in the Wall Street Journal saying, uh, you know, 20% higher capital requirements for banks that are even smaller than the current requirements, so $100 billion in assets or more. And, and that didn't really dent this rally today. So can we say, you know what? Not bad. Maybe things are okay now. Well, I, I mean, we're sort of painting all of them with the same brush when we make a comment like that. I mean, there there are some winners and lo- losers. There are some regional bank participants that actually have seen net deposit inflows that don't have a lot of duration, that don't really have a whole lot to worry about on their on their balance sheets, have mostly insured deposits. And, you know, we're at, what, the same level for KRE that we were close to 10 years ago. Uh, so, I mean, this is, it's a bump off the bottom, but we're, we're still... <laughs> Uh, very close to it, let's be honest. So, I, I mean, I think it would be okay to dip your, your toe in here, but I, I think that the concerns that we have about uh, real estate and commercial real estate in particular, uh, I, I still think that there's probably going to be uh, more shoes to drop there. Yeah, Mike, you, you mentioned a good point about commercial real estate. Now, I can't say whether or not the worst is behind this. What I think you, we can safely say is that 
these stocks were priced as if there, the worst scenario was already priced in. And that's where the, the real trading opportunity comes in. But to Mike's point, I still do think there is some contagion risk within that commercial real estate uh, space. And, and that, is, that might likely be the next shoe to drop. Coming up, Coinbase Crush shares tumbling for a second straight day as it becomes the latest SEC target. What regulators are saying and how the options bits are handling it next. Plus, investors cheersing. Mm-hmm. That's terrible. Over Molson Coors today, as Budweiser's pain seems to be turning into the TAPS gains. What analysts expect out of this one when Fast Money returns? Welcome back to Fast Money. Coinbase shares plunging today after the SEC sued the crypto exchange, alleging its prime brokerage exchange and stalking pro- staking program, excuse me, violate existing securities laws. Coinbase fell 9% in yesterday's session after the SEC lodged similar complaints about Binance. Um, Coin's response is basically, there are no rules here. So what do you expect us to do, Guy? What do you ha- these things seem untouchable with this SEC campaign. And they continue to be untouchable for yeah. sure. Now, this stock will probably bounce at some point over the next couple of weeks, and you can get excited the worst is over. I don't think the worst is over. And Jim Chanos has been talking about this for years, seemingly. I think he's been short the stock. If I'm wrong, I stand corrected. But rightly so if he is. And there's more downside in these names. Now, what it means for Bitcoin, I'm not so sure. But I'll tell you. Bitcoin hasn't traded particularly well over the last couple of weeks either. Yeah. Tim, what do you think? Well, there's still not really any clear legal path for these companies to register these things as securities. Right. And, and that's part of the issue here. Um, I, I do think also Coinbase has had this hanging over them for some time. So, uh, it, you know, once we understand more about the extent of the penalties, um, it actually may be some sense of, OK, you know, unless there's a defiance and a sense of, no, we're not going down this road. Uh, I wouldn't be messing with the SEC here. I, I also think that, as we've said many times, this industry should should want more regulation. It should it should embrace it. And, and I think that's you know something that we we are starting to get a little bit more behind. But the pathway to making this clear cut as to how they should treat the underlying is is not clearer today than it was yesterday. Yeah, I mean, what is shocking is that the SEC is basically saying you've been operating like this since, what, 2019 or something. I mean, it's been years that they've been operating like this, and nothing has been done until today. Um, And so in the meantime, all these people, if it were truly dangerous for all these years, they let investors go Mm -hmm. ahead and do that. Um, And if it's not, then they've just been punishing this company that's been operating like that for years for no reason. Yeah, exactly. You want more regulation. You don't want more litigation, right? The, The path to how you're supposed to operate is supposed to be extremely clear. And it's still unclear. Is it SEC? Is it CFTC? Is it futures contracts? Are they, you know, um, are they SEC regulated uh, 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 tokens or, or whatnot? I mean, it, to me, it just, uh, my mind spins trying to wrap my head around what the legal precedent is for them to even operate. Mm-hmm. What I will say is I'm much more comfortable with a Coinbase than I am Binance. And let's parse into this. Essentially, the Binance situation is saying that Funds are being misappropriated or being coupled, co-mingled. That's that's a completely separate issue. And I don't think Coinbase should be trading off in in tandem to that. This is, as as, as Guy and Tim both said, this has kind of been an overhang for the stock for some time. And I think that's somewhat priced in. But I just do want to delineate those two separate things between Binance and, and Coinbase. Well, what's surprising to me was that Hood was higher today in spite of this. Or do you think maybe Hood benefits because Coinbase is in trouble? I don't know. I couldn't, I couldn't figure out how to read Dan it. Dan talked about Robinhood a, co- yeah. a couple of months ago, what time's escaping me. But, you know, in terms of their balance sheet, they're actually not in bad shape. So this stock, we talked about it a, a month or so ago, trading the stock from the long side seemingly made sense. And I do think to a certain extent they're probably a beneficiary from all of this. Well, options traders flooding into Coinbase today. So, Mike, what were they betting? 
Yeah, so this was actually the busiest uh, financial stock option. It was the sixth busiest single stock option overall. And we did see puts significantly outpacing calls. Now, what was interesting here was that the two busiest contracts were the 50 strike puts and the 40 strike puts, both of those expiring at the end of this week. But where I saw some of the bigger prints, people were actually selling those 50 strike puts and then buying the 40s on, on a ratio, but they were net collecting premium. I think the idea here is that they think, okay, this has been a known overhang. Now it's out there. Maybe the stock will stabilize you know, in this 50 to $48 range between now and the end of the week. But to Guy's point, in the longer run, we did see some downside puts trading, but much further out in time. So it seems like people are trying to collect some premium, figuring the news is out, but uh, they do see potential overhang in the months ahead. Right. For more options action, tune into the full show. That is Friday, 5.30 p.m. Eastern time. There is a lot more fast money to come. Here's what's coming up next. Raise a glass to gains. Shares of Molson Coors bubbling higher as controversy brews at one of its chief rivals. How the Budweiser backlash is fueling the move. Next. Plus, a cautious call. One analyst dialing into AT&T. But it's far from a full bar backing. The cellular stance ahead. You're watching Fast Money, live from the NASDAQ market site in Times Square. We're back right after this. Welcome back to Fast Money. Shares of Molson Coors, a producer of Miller and Coors Light, popping higher today after an upgrade at Bank of America. The firm saying the beer maker is the biggest beneficiary of the Bud Light boycott and that the boost in sales will likely last through the July 4th holiday. Stock is up more than 26% since the controversy took hold, and it's lasting much longer than what many analysts had expected. Tim, just the other day, your final trade was? Budweiser. Yeah. The Brazilian beer company. That really mm-hmm. bothers people, so uh. I have to do that. Um, I, I think some of this is overdone. Uh, I think, first of all, there are trends in beer, and there's been consolidation that, that have been troubling for the entire industry, and there have been those that have held up better. And you look at a Constellation uh, and, and you know what they've been able to do with their Modelo brand and whatnot. I, I, I think this is an opportunity for Budweiser longer term. And, and I, you know, honestly, uh, I, I'm an investor, and, and you know, this is what I care about. And I think it's absurd, by the way, to not be able to invest in a company um, based upon, again, the reasons people may or may not be boycotting because, you know, these are the kinds of things you hear from people. And it's it tells me opportunity. I think it's crazy. Yeah. um, The thing about boycotts is that they're really unpredictable. I mean, look at the pickle that Target found itself in. Um, pickle again. Is, yeah, Sorry. that came up in yeah. yesterday's yeah. show. Yeah, we pickled talked, it. We, talked, we asked in the question, maybe you know. Like, in a difficult spot. Where's the phrase come which from? Apparently is in a pickle. It's got to be Shakespeare. Everything yeah. is Shakespeare. No, I mean, if when you don't know, just say, just let's go with the Shakespeare. Shakespeare. By the way, pickles are very good for your constitution. They're also delicious. The more yeah. you know. That's a separate issue. Yeah. Completely. For now, the issue is sort of like, you know, as an investor, you can, you can think about models, you can think about inventory, you can think about margins, et cetera, et cetera. But when it comes to these boycotts, you just don't know how to price these things in. You also know that people have, do have short memories, and everybody loves That's, a comeback yeah. story. And I think Budweiser will figure this out. And Tim probably talked on his final trade about valuation, and it less now than 15 times forward. Budweiser's cheap. Now, it's interesting about TAP. They reported on May 3rd, which was a great quarter. Stock sold off pretty significantly after that. This move got to right back to those levels. So TAP is one thing. It's fine. I think Budweiser is the play here. Yeah, I mean, I think this is definitely a short-term phenomenon, right? This boycott situation, you said no visibility, and I guess that gives investors a bit of pause. But at the same time, there's probably not a lot of staying power to this whole situation. Uh, and then if you just kind of start to look at the financials of the companies, you got TAP and Bud that both trade around that 15, 15 and a half times, but the gross margins are literally 20% different. 
right? So there's no way over the long run I'm rotating out of bud into tap knowing that I'm going to pick up 20 points of gross margin if I stay in the bud trade. I do drink Coors Light, by the way, just, just to be clear. Full disclosure, we have to give disclosures on air, right? I mean, I, I enjoy, I enjoy, and, and I got to make sure those I drink, I drink nice and blue. Snapple. Let's get them nice and blue. What do you blue. drink? I mean, now that we're having this conversation. What do I drink? I drink water. Yeah. Like, Bonald, anything? <laughs> Such a good girl. Well, that's that's so funny. Funny. Okay. <laughs> um, Michael, your thoughts, and, and what do you drink, too? Uh, well, I, I don't drink Coors Light or Miller Light or, or Bud Light, actually. Uh, we, we drink more wine out here in uh, Northern California oh, than, than light beer. <laughs> but, you know, the, I, with respect to the boycott, I, I don't know. I mean, if somebody was buying a product and suddenly switches to another one, who's to say it's going to switch back? I mean, I, I'm not talking about simply forgetting the reason that you made that shift. Once it's done, it may very well be done. I, I don't know necessarily that you're going to see a big return back to Bud Light if people decide that they like, as Tim does, Coors Light. <laughs> Coming up, <laughs> spilling the tea. What, what? <laughs> I think that's so funny. He does drink Coors Light. We've seen him drink Coors Light. Of course we've Bo- been out. Boat water, yeah. by the way. It's hydrating. Uh, hydrating. <laughs> spilling, that's what you like to think. Spilling the tea. Shares of AT&T getting a boost after an upgrade from one analyst, but it is more of a flip phone type of call. Craig Moffat of SVB, Moffat Nathanson, dials in next with what he sees for the space. That interview when Fast Money returns. Get your trades to go with the Fast Money podcast. Catch us anytime, anywhere. Follow today on your favorite podcasting app. We're back right after this. Welcome back to Fast Money Stocks. Closing in the green after a volatile day, the Dow barely managing to eke out a gain. The S&P up nearly a quarter of a percent, hovering near a 19-month high. The Nasdaq up more than three-tenths of a percent. Homebuilders, a bright spot in today's market action. Pulte Group and DR Horton both closing at all-time highs, while Toll Brothers and Lennar were both at their highest in over a year. This Gu- doesn't make guys sense. Guys, homebuilders. Guys, homebuilders. homebuilders. Yeah. Well, I own them. I own it's been crushing it. Environment <laughs> where the economy might be headed for a recession. Supply demand imbalances have been around in this space for quite some time. They got through the hiccup of rising rates. The market figured it out, and now they're going higher. There will be a day where people are starting to pull the ripcord, given unemployment may be ticking higher, some of these things. We're just not there yet, and I think these stocks can continue to grind higher. Yeah, and uh, a lot of the input costs have really come down, Bonin, which is helping margins. They certainly have. I mean, but uh, and that explains a lot of the other moves. I mean, a Toll Brothers, that I, to me, that's kind of the port in the eye of the storm just because of their pricing and where they're kind of marketing their homes to. Uh, and, and to Mike's point earlier, there's you got to pick winners and losers. But to Guy's point, I really think it's about supply and demand imbalance. And that's why you're seeing the home builders move this way and that being differentiated from other parts of the real estate environment. All right. Meantime, we got an upgrade for AT&T. That's our call of the day. SVB Moffat Nathanson raising the stock from underperform to a market perform. While analysts point out they don't see much upside for the stock, they do say shares have already priced in the tough environment. For more, let's bring in Craig Moffat, the man behind the call. Craig, great to have you on. I think the last time we had you on, it was something like along the lines of what's wrong with AT&T. You laid out all these reasons why you didn't like the stock at all, and here you are, you're less bearish, um, and that's simply because it's fairly valued now? Yeah, look, I'm less, I'm less bearish because it's less expensive. Um, it was, I think, if I recall, $23 at the time. Now it's 15 and change, um, and so it's hard to have the same level of bearishness at this valuation. You do call into question, though, it's, it's cash figures, right? It's yeah, cash flow I, figures. 
Yeah, look, to be fair, I'm not the only one, but it, mm-hmm. but uh, it, it, this is a company that that significantly lowered its guidance last year for free cash flow, and the proof is in the pudding, right? Uh, it, for all the free cash flow that they said they generated, um, their net debt actually rose a little bit last year instead of fell without any acquisitions. Um, so, it, but leaving aside that issue, I mean, this is a company that that is struggling, right? We, we've got it doing. 220 in in earnings this year by 2027 we've got it doing just over two so it's this is not a growth business um, it's a tough industry and uh, and uh, it, it's it's not something I think we, we said in the note we're not optimists um, it, you shouldn't mistake this upgrade for suddenly we think there are green shoots and things are getting better it's simply that the the market has appropriately priced in that um, what what you get when you get AT and T. Craig, first, congrats because you you really have been on the other side of this trade, and it's kind of cool to see you know taking two bites of this cherry. I, I I'm long AT and T and and was on the wrong side of the trade on the way down, um, but. I, the competitive and predatory nature of the industry, throwing in, obviously, scrambling cable companies, too. Um, T-Mobile has crushed everybody. Uh, yes. and, and should we read through that the, the best days for, for T-Mobile are over? And I know we're talking about AT&T here, but I'm just I, I look at the entire industry. And yes, the glass is half full at this point. Um, but I, I continue to think T-Mobile is going to eat their lunch. Yeah, it's a good it's a good point. They absolutely will, I think. Um, the, the question there is. Are expectations for T-Mobile now also at a point where where it looks like it's roughly a market performer? We I, I sat on a on a, a buy rating on T-Mobile for what was essentially a decade and downgraded them about I want to say four months ago um, because not because I think they're any less good a company, but because finally expectations had caught up. And again, it's you know T-Mobile's the best house in a bad neighborhood, um, but. That's fine if the neighborhood is is declining. If the neighborhood catches on fire, even a bad house, even the best house is not going to be um, a place where you necessarily want to be. And so, I, my enthusiasm for T-Mobile has cooled because expectations have come up, the price has come up, and uh, and the neighborhood has gotten even worse. Since you're less bearish on AT and T, Craig, is the possibility of it cutting its dividend in the rearview mirror, or is that still a possibility given your doubts about free cash flow? Always a possibility, unfortunately. I, I don't think it's an imminent possibility. Um, we started saying we thought they'd cut the dividend, um, boy, I want to say five years ago or so, and it finally culminated in the dividend cut that they took as they were spinning off uh, the the Warner Media business. Um, I think now it's it's probably safe for the time being, but um, but ultimately. If you're a business that's got as much debt as AT&T does and you're not growing and they're not, um, then ultimately that where that takes you, particularly in a rising rate environment like we're in and they and they have to refinance their debt is it takes you eventually to having to cut the dividend. And and to be clear, the pressure on the dividend at AT&T, and this is true for not just AT&T, but also Verizon even, is not that they're, they don't generate enough cash to to pay the dividend. It's that they don't generate enough cash to meaningfully delever, and their leverage ratios are already higher than what would be warranted for their credit ratings. So ultimately, the pressure point is something's got to give, and usually that is that they have to reduce the dividend in order to delever faster. Craig, always great to have you on. Thank you so much. My pleasure, Melissa. Good to see you.
What are your thoughts about AT&T? Well, I mean, we've talked about it for a while. There's been no real compelling reason. Valuation and the dividend, both those things haven't really worked all that well. I mean, he's Craig's been on it for quite some time. So to, for him to make this move is significant, but he still has a $17 price target. T-Mobile, on the other hand, I think he's got a $178 price target, which is about a 30% move from here. That's the place to be. But the existential risk to all these people mm-hmm. is Amazon. And we talked about it last week yeah. and probably there where there's smoke, there's fire. Uh, Mike, do the options uh, indicate any doubts about the dividend? Uh, they do, actually. You know, I was I was long AT&T after that most recent reported quarter, and we saw disappoint, disappointing free cash flow numbers. I, I actually unwound it at, at that time. I added a little bit today. Right now, the options market is implying a forward dividend of about 18 cents, so that's less than the current one. There's a couple different ways to think about that. You can think about it as a probability of a large cut, or you know, a combination of a, of a good size probability of a moderate cut in the dividend, I think they would have to cut it fairly meaningfully. We are in a higher cost of capital environment. And if you don't have a growing business, you don't want to see your debt levels growing in this environment either. That's untenable, um, as we were just hearing. So I, I think a dividend cut is, is probably quite likely within the next uh, 18 to 24 months. I think a dividend dividend cut uh, would be devastating for the stock. Um, I, I, they are not in a position to cut the dividend. That's what people are hanging around for. I realize it's it's kind of a cartoonish looking dividend at this point, and it kind of should be based upon the capital erosion. So um, I can tell you I would find that to be reason to run. Up next, a new buzzkill for Boeing, the latest nightmare for the Dreamliner, plus a big lift for Lyft. What's behind today's surge? And throughout, CNBC, uh, throughout June, <laughs> CNBC is celebrating Pride Month. Here's the chairman and CEO of Dow Chemical. Supporting Pride is one way that we can show the LGBTQ community that we all accept and respect each other for our differences, whatever those differences may happen to be. Supporting Pride gives hope and reassurance that each of us can be our best because we are accepted as who we are, our true and whole selves. It really comes down to simply treating others how we want to be treated ourselves, with empathy, understanding, and compassion. Do not miss our own Tim Seymour on CNBC's Whoa. monthly Pro Talks tomorrow, 1 p.m. Eastern Time, hosted by Christina Partsinevelis. Pro subscribers can join live on the digital side at cnbc.com slash Pro Talks. Lots to do. It's going to be exciting. Picture. They're like answering. You're going to answer questions. We're going to answer questions. We're going to get in deep. There's there's a lot to do. It's going to be exciting. All right. Tune in. Uh, meantime, we've got a buzzkill on Boeing. Shares dropping after the aerospace giant issued a warning about a new defect on its 787 Dreamliner. The problem will delay the delivery of the planes. The stock ended the day down around a buck and a half. Mike, it just seems like one after the other in terms of reasons to delay. It is just a constant source of uh, bad news, it seems, coming out of them. It seems every single time we kind of get something put into the into the background, something else emerges. Obviously, the 787 Dreamliner has had a slew of problems uh, for a couple of years now. And then, of course, we had the big mess with the 737 Max. Uh, you know, I mean, it's it's right now, I think it's probably, as Carter likes to say, a, a pair of twos. I mean, I don't think that there was a whole lot of good news built into this thing. Uh, because, I mean, we've sort of come to expect this at this stage. Yeah. Tim? Well, the, the, the free cash flow, the 787 has been one of the most free cash flow generative planes they make by far. I mean, the wide bodies a lot more so than the max. And, and so this is, this is a hit. 
Um, but I, I, I still think I'm just looking at the numbers here. I mean, the, the, the free cash flow associated with the 787 is, is about 600 million today. Uh, the expectation is, as they continue to ramp up, that it was going to be two and a half billion by 2025. I'm looking at a note from Jeffries, by the way. And, you know, I mean, this is a big hit. Um, and I do think this is a company that is all about free cash flow in the future, because I think, you know, COVID is in the rearview mirror. And we can say that. And for the airline industry, normalcy is good for Boeing. All right. Uh, Lyft, by the way, tapping the tape. The rideshare app wrapping the day up more than 6%. Stock making more than a 27% comeback from May 24th when it hit its all-time low. What a turnaround, Guy. What a turnaround. But we, how many times have we seen this before? And listen, I was on the wrong side of Lyft for the longest time, but I finally even said, you know, it's time to pull the ripcord. And every bounce we've seen has been exactly that, a short-covering bounce. And my sense is... We're seeing exactly that right now. I don't think anything has fundamentally changed. Is this in your acronym? You, you know it's in my acronym. And so we she, spend, she loves we spend, doing I mean, that, by I, the no, way. It's fine. It's, it's not. <laughs> and, and the acronym is LAGS, and it is the Ellen LAGS. And, in fact, it's the part of the LAGS acronym that is lagging. It's actually been destroyed. Everything else there is doing just fine. So uh, it's a long season, as we say. <laughs> and I plan, to, I plan to win this thing. I, I, I didn't play the acronym game to lose. No. Yeah. Nobody, mean, does. No, Nobody does. It's no dawn. Why would you bother playing the acronym game unless your intent was to win? <laughs> That wasn't, I just said something mean-spirited, by the way. Yeah, no, I heard what he said. He said it's no dawn, is what he said. It was a dig. (laughs) I hear everything. Yeah. yeah. Well, since we're quite all this, I mean, Dan has a pretty, yeah. Dan, I'm going to try to stay calm here. Dan has a pretty good one. One up, two down, right? And that is a story of this. You know, it's only a few days ago where I saw news essentially saying that they're going to have to reimburse Gig economy, gig economy worker. So I'm also inclined to think that this is a short-term, uh, short-covering bounce, and I'd probably be selling into it. Yeah, Michael. Yeah, I, I don't see uh, this is necessarily the time to get into it. You really want to see more momentum behind it. Uh, we're still stuck in a downtrend here, and until I see us meaningfully break out of that, I wouldn't be tempted. All right, coming up, the Pied Piper of Wall Street, Ryan Cohen. Up next, we'll have an exclusive first look at a brand new documentary I've been working on, Making It the Meme King, ahead of its premiere tonight. You won't want to miss this. Fast Money View, right back. Welcome back to Fast Money. Tonight on CNBC at 10 p.m., we'll be debuting a new documentary looking at the rise of Ryan Cohen, the man who became known as the Meme King. The former Chewy CEO made headlines for going all in on Bad Bath & Beyond, among other stocks, but it was his exit that raised some eyebrows. This feels like a big fugazi, as the kids say. It's real. But yeah, exactly. We were trying to figure things out in real time. You're looking through it, you're comparing it with past filings, and that's when we realized that there was not really much new information in that amended filing. It was sort of a race to just try and figure this out because we were seeing the stock run. And so we wanted to find some answers. And what we later learned a couple days later in another filing is that Ryan Cohen sold his entire stake, every share. That's not something small. We're talking over $140 million. That is a non-trivial amount of volume to get sold. I was not paying attention to Bed Bath & Beyond at all until his trades came through. A trade of that size, it's it's only natural that that sort of raise red flags. Shares getting crushed right now, down 40%. Such a gut punch, but what you saw was like all these people were just left with shares that had just crashed. From Redditors to people close to Ryan Cohen, here are the inside story of the mysterious and sometimes controversial entrepreneur turned activist investor. It's all tonight, 10 p.m. Eastern Time and Pacific. Making of the Meme King right here 
on CNBC and, uh, you know, during the whole meme craze. He was the poster child. He was known as Papa Cohen on Reddit. Well, no, no one the story of the shorts. and nobody cared about the fundamentals. Nobody cared right. about there was some sense of almost, uh, you know, kamikaze investing. I mean, it was it, the but, you know, did, did you speak to him? No. And that was the interesting, interesting. thing about this documentary. Usually huh. we choose to do a documentary where sure. we have some sort of access. This was new. He declined to participate. Um, we did talk to many people who were very close to him, including uh, Larry Chang of Volition Capital, who gave him the initial money, the initial seed money to start Chewy. So people who knew him very or know him very, very well um, to get sort of how this man ticks and, and what his motivations may or, or may not have been. It's a fascinating time in investing. You know, we've seen a lot of different cycles. The whole meme dynamic is something that uh, yeah. is as pronounced as any. And then the Bed Bath & Beyond, when he sold every single share, was it actually a rug pull? Or was that just Ryan Cohen saying, you know what, I can't enact the change I want because there's not enough time, it's too close to bankruptcy? Or did he know something else? Because he had three directors on the board at the time he sold. I'm sure you'll address this. How many docs have you done, by the way? I don't know. Too many to count. count. Lost count. I I would know if it was because I haven't done any. With that said, (laughs) I mean, was it Bed Bath & Beyond that he announced that huge way out of the money call option? Right, which had already been in place prior to that. And then he chose, you know, the opportune time to announce it. So there's a lot of things to dissect. I will be watching after the Yankee Pale Sox game this evening. I mean, me too. Yes, of course. I know what you're talking about. But um, (laughs) Mike, has there been any sort of um, uh, less, is there less interest in these meme stocks uh, in the options pits? I think there's a little bit less certainly than there was during the peak in the pandemic. But, you know, when when you think about it, for years, we always were focused on what the whales were doing. Where's the big money, the real money account flows? Because, of course, as we all know, when it comes to the stock market in the short term, it's a voting machine. In the long term, it's a weighing machine. We care how people are voting with their dollars. And what we learned during the pandemic was that retail traders en masse in some cases are a much bigger impact, uh, especially on some of these, you know, sort of controlled flowed situations uh, than the real money accounts can be. So, of course, it's something we all want to pay attention to. I think that uh, we certainly do still see short term trading going on in the options market. It's not as much, though, as we were seeing uh, in the peak of the pandemic period. Yeah, let me throw out the disclaimer in big red letters. I am not advocating playing in these stocks. However, if you are going to play in them, I think options likely really is the only way to do it because of the short-term nature, because of the shock nature of these types of trades, and just because of the FOMO and momentum aspect of trading that's really kind of separated from, from fundamental analysis. Up next, final trades. for the final trade. Let's go around the horn. Mike Coe. Yeah, mortgage applications, earnings, and a whole bunch of other stuff coming up. Of course, rates, but we own Lennar right here. If you get a pullback, you might want to take a look at it. Tim? I still think Boeing, that free cash flow comes back. If you're patient, and granted, as we've said, you get a lot of Boeing stepping on its own foot. Uh, let's hope not. Bono in. I think short-term shocks present long-term investing opportunities. I'm going to take a look at Bud. Okay. Denver, Miami, tied at one. What are you thinking, Melms? A lot Denver. of people didn't have Miami winning any of these games. What are your thoughts? Denver. Simple. She, she, she synthesizes. She, she, she What's cut right think to the about? chase. Going to watch Jimmy that Butler. special tonight, too. Jimmy Jimmy I'll be tuning in 10 p.m. Eastern. Yeah. Exxon Mobile system. 
right. Yes, Making of the Meme King, 10 p.m. Eastern Time right here on CNBC. Thank you for watching Fast Money. Mad Money with Jim Cramer starts right now. All opinions expressed by the Fast Money participants are solely their opinions and do not reflect the opinions of CNBC, NBC Universal, their parent company or affiliates, and may have been previously disseminated by them on television, radio, internet, or another medium. You should not treat any opinion expressed on this podcast as a specific inducement to make a particular investment or follow a particular strategy, but only as an expression of an opinion. Such opinions are based upon information the Fast Money participants consider reliable, but neither CNBC nor its affiliates and or subsidiaries warrant its completeness or accuracy, and it should not be relied upon as such. To view the full Fast Money Disclaimer, please visit cnbc.com forward slash Fast Money Disclaimer.